0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barkers UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about the challenges the government are having over their handling of the pandemic, the prospects of Scottish independence, and what this means for investors in the UK. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Olivia Gleeson, UK Government Relations Expert, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. Hello, welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome back Olivia Gleeson, who is our, our seasoned analyst covering UK politics. So, something tells me there may be some interesting stuff for us to discuss or or certainly to get our teeth into. We're also joined by Will Hobbs, our CIO, and as usual, we'll get a few insights around what's going on in the world of economics, investments, markets, and, and potentially a little bit of how the two things tie together. So first and foremost, hi, Will. Hi, Olivia. Hi. Hello,
1: Nikki how are we Hi. all? Sunny, locked inside, beautiful sunshine.
0: It's it's amazing, isn't it? But it brings a smile to the face, just knowing that at some point, some point we might get out there and, and have maybe a chilled drink or two. So Olivia, welcome back. Thanks very much for coming back and being on our podcast. And I guess the... The spectacle of the week was, of course, seven hours of television, thanks to Dominic Cummings. And this time it was actually seven hours of him on television as opposed to us waiting for him to appear in the Rose Garden. But there's a lot here which is probably beyond the purview of this podcast because we are sort of steeped in, in market land. But I guess the main question really that arises after some of us might have watched uh, some of that testimony is... The challenges that the government is having over the handling of the pandemic and, you know, some of the criticisms that were perhaps levelled by Dominic Cummings, is is any of this having what seems to be the, the phrase of the year cut through? Is this having any cut through at all?
2: So, you know, I think that's a great question, Nikki. And I I understand uh, you couldn't miss bringing up the opportunity to talk about the Rose Garden. But, you know, this particular session uh, in front of the various parliamentary committees was quite a blockbuster. You know, Dominic Cummings, the former number 10 advisor, revealed sort of an alleged litany of failures of governance from the Johnson administration throughout the course of the pandemic. And, you know, it seemingly led the news for days. And we waited to see the fallout from what we're calling sort of destructive Dom. But to be honest, it, it never really came. And, you know, obviously a YouGov poll found out that 38% of people trusted Boris Johnson to tell the truth, which might seem low, but 75% didn't trust Cummings to tell the truth. So he certainly wasn't a trusted messenger throughout his performance. And I've discussed this before, but I think the best way to look at it is, you know, is this Cummings row just essentially more bubble politics? Now, of course, you know, relative to lost loved ones in the pandemic, you know, The government's handling of COVID is personal, but more widely, you know, these types of allegations, you know, ministerial mishaps the he said, she said, don't really cut through with the public at large. And in fact, it's probably fair to say that the public have already largely made their mind up on the handling of the pandemic. You know, they feel the government did mess it up. We certainly should have been faster in locking down. But they're also sympathetic that the government were in unprecedented territory and that governing through COVID was a pretty difficult burden And you know, what's more, for many of the public, they've already moved on. Almost every adult Brit in the country would have soon received that sort of magical text, inviting them to receive their vaccine. And we're edging closer and closer to freedom. And that's where the public's mind is really at. But I think, you know, you're also touching on that wider point about cut through with this particular government and our particular Prime Minister, and what some people refer to as his infallibility. Now, we've had U-turns like the school meals, we've had disasters with the exam saga, we've even recently had accusations of sort of personal sleaze and inappropriate use of monies by the Prime Minister himself, and yet the public continue to remain largely unfazed. And I should add, you know, of course, there are a few recent opinion polls showing a slight dent in the Prime Minister's popularity in the wake of the coming evidence, but I'm not sure, you know, how significant that is. The underlying approval figures for the government are largely driven by the vaccine rollout, And they're fairly unchanged and remain pretty strong. So, yeah, I guess in summary, you know, the Cummings' betrayal is a setback for the government, of course. You know, it maybe points towards the inquiry and difficult times to come. But with a pipeline, you know, of positive vaccination developments, the reopening and hopefully an economic bounce back, I think the government have more than enough tools in their arsenal to remain sort of on top. And I think they're betting on the fact that after everything, people largely want to move on and leave this last year behind them.
0: Yeah, and I guess what you say there, Olivia, about people intrinsically focused on the future, wanting to move on, perhaps leaving last year behind them. Well, is that what you see when you look at the data? Clearly, the Indian variant, which has really sort of dominated the new caseload, they're still reasonably low in this country. So where do you think we're at when it comes to what the data is telling us?
1: Yeah, that's right, Nikki. I mean, so uh, what's it B one six one seven spot two has rapidly become the dominant COVID genome in the UK. Uh, really, in the space of a month, which I guess speaks to you know that added transmissibility that um, that people are you know the experts are talking about with regards to this strain. However, as you say, the number of cases and hospital admissions relative to the beginning of the year is still so far. Very low, thankfully. And there's also some reassurance to be taken from the data on antibody prevalence from the Office of National Statistics. You can look up this very good website where they've got lots of good data with regards to all sorts of things. You know, if you want to geek out on the economy as well, you can do that. But it's also got very good data. But And this combines vaccine uptake with a blood test results to generate an estimate of population resilience, with obviously lots of caveats about what antibodies can actually tell us and so on and so on. But anyway, the good news is that an estimated seven in Ten adults would now test positive for antibodies uh, to the coronavirus in England, with comparably high percentages for the rest of the UK. And this is particularly skewed, as uh, Olivia just alluded to, uh, towards the over fifties, obviously, where you know the numbers rise much more to eight or nine in ten. So the news, so still, is broadly good, although you know there are some concerns, you know, understandable concerns about the Indian variant.
0: So that does sound sound slightly more positive. But how does that translate to the UK economy?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think. Increasingly broad-based perkiness would be the easiest way to describe it. So the high frequency data do point to that patch of bleak weather we were, from a couple of weeks back, I'd hesitate to call it uncharacteristically bleak, but uh, it did depress some activity, understandably. However, the overall sense, I think, is is of a, of a sort of brisk recovery uh, in motion.
0: Okay. And, you know, we, we talked in earlier podcasts about the degree to which policymakers, clearly there's there's been a very accommodative stance um, to try to support the economy, but there's got to be a time where, that gets dialed back, right? So I know you're a fan of Andy Haldane, but we've seen a couple of comments from members of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee talking about the very lively residential property market that, that we're seeing. And all over the world, there are concerns about inflation. So I guess, what does this tell us about where interest rates are likely to go and when?
1: Yes. I mean, so as we pointed out before, I mean, it's quite rare in history to see central bankers, governments and the private sector, you know, so consumers and businesses all trying to push hard on the accelerator all at the same time for a kind of sustained period of time. And to varying degrees, you are seeing this happen across much of the developed world. Now, this is deliberate for most part. You know, there is a feeling that running at what's called a high pressure economy for a while could be the cure for a world economy that had been characterized as somewhat one even before uh, this crisis with kind of low growth and low inflation. I guess the risk is they get what they want. Now, for the moment, we are still suggesting the world economy should be treated as innocent until proven guilty on the inflation front. Uh, remember that there is still a, you know, a Way to go before we can signal the all, all, all clear from the uh, from the perspective of the pandemic, particularly if you look at it globally, even in the context of that very positive UK data on antibodies. And we're still really waiting to find out how much the world economy and the nature and number of jobs it offers has been changed by this crisis. So yes, you know, you may find that interest rates could rise a bit earlier than planned and you're seeing it on a daily basis, the market speculation on this. So we've had some good data in the US today and that's immediately prompted a few sort of bit, a bit more speculation on that front. But remember, on the other side, there's a kind of balancing effect. The long history of pandemics aftermaths would argue that interest rates could conceivably be much lower for longer than we currently plan. So for the moment, we're sort of sitting somewhere in between and we sort of say that, uh, you know, getting splinters a little bit, but, uh, you know, that, that somewhere in between feels right for us. Uh, like I say, the world economy is still innocent until proven guilty.
0: So you're absolutely living that line around on on the one hand and the other which which president was it that that i
1: think it was president truman who complained about that yeah give me a one-handed economist thinking, yeah, like you.
0: but i guess the world is complex so yes. it would be lovely to different. be able to um boil it down completely yeah. into absolutes okay well i mean i might keep trying so so olivia no pressure but when it comes to trying to get a straight answer there's <laughs> clearly from a political standpoint a bit of a an elephant in the room around the potential for for Scottish independence and and you know it's certainly something that our clients and customers ask us about quite a bit at the moment. Do you think the chances are higher or or lower for that than they were before those recent elections and the outcome that we saw?
2: Well I mean I think if you're hoping for a categorical answer you know you've asked somebody working in politics so that's Probably Never not too happen. straightforward. But, you know, what What I will agree with you is that, you know, Scotland is clearly the next big political question. And I think we can expect this saga to run and run over the next few years. But if we start with the sort of good news from the most recent Scottish Parliament elections, for one, you know, the SNP didn't return that overwhelming majority, uh, which Westminster can try to argue, although, you know, I'm not sure that convincingly uh, undermines their mandate for independence. And then secondly, because the SNP didn't get an overwhelming majority, there's been a slight sort of pause in momentum on their way to independence. You know, quite honestly, they now need more time to move a greater amount of public opinion in their direction. The latest polls are sort of 50-50 or or thereabouts. And then finally, you know, if you throw in there the need to prioritise the pandemic recovery, an independence poll before sort of, say, 2023 seemed quite unlikely. So, you know, the UK government certainly have greater space to deal with this question perhaps they'd envisioned in a worst case scenario uh, a couple of months prior. You know, that being said, it's slightly lazy analysis to assume that just because the SNP didn't get an overwhelming majority, the prospects for independence are dented. You know, the SNP is still the largest party commanding the most support and a pro-independence majority, you know, unequivocally exists in Scottish Parliament when you factor in other parties like the Greens. So the mandate from a political perspective is certainly still there. And Nicola Sturgeon remains as popular as ever. You know, I'm not a betting person, but if I was looking at the situation now from the UK government's perspective, I'd say they'd be feeling ever so slightly more comfortable than they were at the start of the year. They've got more time and positive wind under their sails uh, with the COVID vaccine and recovery.
0: Do you see any evidence that the UK government are looking
2: to try to head this off at the pass in any way? Well, unfortunately for the UK government, you know, I don't think it's going to be quite that straightforward. Instead, the most likely scenario is, you know, lengthy constitutional wrangling that ends up in the courts. But, you know, I'll leave the technical ins and outs of that for another day. And I think you've had other Scottish independence experts. But you are right to raise what actions the UK government might take besides the potential legal fight back to try and mitigate the independence movement. You know, for one, I think we can already detect a strategic move from the Conservatives to try to present a united UK approach to COVID-19 recovery. And in doing that, they hope to sort of tie the economic build back, hopefully, to UK government leadership, thereby limiting the ability of Sturgeon to sort of claim a Scottish success story. And in fact, I think as we record, the Four Nation Recovery Summit is actually taking place, bringing together representatives from the four devolved nations to discuss the COVID 19 pandemic build back. You know, that'll be chaired by our Prime Minister Boris Johnson and was very cleverly announced the day after the Scottish elections, forcing Nicola Sturgeon to agree that a united response to COVID recovery would be one of her governing priorities rather than the isolated pursuit of independence. So I think, it, you know, it's very early days, and I'm sure we'll begin to see many more tactical plays from the UK government on this issue over the coming months. So we should all stay tuned.
0: Okay, and just moving on a little, in our own nod to the democratic process, we do like to capture what are the key things that that clients and customers are, are, are asking Uh, our relationship teams, and then try and address these in this podcast in the hope that that answers some unasked questions that our listeners might have. So starting with one which is always really hard to ignore, which is the roller coaster we see in Bitcoin and and other cryptocurrencies, we've seen some net effect of that, a a much lower price level for, for these cryptos. So Will, I know before you said not for us, but given that prices are cheaper, is this time to get interested?
1: No, there's no change in our views here, Nikki. It's it's only for the brave. I still can't see what purpose something like Bitcoin serves. That that may change, to be honest. But you know, however, a, a stiffer regulatory backdrop will surely continue to materialise, uh, particularly given the role of some of these coins as kind of lubricant in various criminal enterprises. Yeah, we, we continue to watch with interest, but from the sidelines.
0: Yeah, and and I guess the price movement that we've seen just reflects. Again, our, our feeling that they're just too volatile and hard yes, to value. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, so turning to you, Olivia, and this might be a bit of a tricky one, but mm-hmm. if there's a third wave, you know, which obviously we all we all hope and pray is not on the cards, but if it were to be, do you think we're likely to see the government respond in the same way as it's as it's done before? I.e., you know, the the fairly draconian lockdowns, the the economy being put in a coma. Would you imagine that that would be the likely
2: response? You know, I should probably cover myself and say never say never. But actually, I think it's very hard to see how the government can manage such a draconian approach again. I mean, for one, if you look at sentiment amongst Tory MPs, there's really little tolerance for much short of society effectively returning to normal and learning to live with COVID. Now, the most vulnerable. Are theoretically protected and i think the media at least for now are taking a similar stance i think i read the mail this week saying you know there's nothing to fear from freedom and then as for boris johnson we know he's absolutely loath to pursue another lockdown unless the science you know makes it unequivocally clear he's he's got no other choice so you know that leaves the government with few other options you know they could pursue local lockdowns to curb outbreaks but you know given the difficulties they faced in the rebellion with the previous tier system i think they'll be uh keen keen to avoid that one another option you know for interest is segmentation we actually know that sort of at the end of last year boris johnson asked the cabinet to drop plans for all over 55s to self-isolate in order to avoid the lockdown for the rest of the country at the end of the year but you know the segmentation was rejected by cabinet and we suspect it's probably unviable but as you say hopefully it won't come to this you know from where we stand now there's a high degree of confidence that vaccination is breaking the link between the rising case numbers and significantly rising cases of serious illness or death and because that because of that the government won't have to react so aggressively with tough restrictions in the face of rising case numbers but you know of course with this you know new delta variant we'll have to watch and see where this goes and i think the government's next announcement about the 21st of june unlocking also known as freedom day will send a clear signal of how dovish or hawkish they plan to be on the rise in COVID cases over the coming months. So watch, watch and wait and hope.
0: Okay, and Will, just turning to you. Clearly, the markets. You know, if we look back over over the last year and a quarter, we we've seen quite significant volatility in in markets. And I think there will be a number of listeners that perhaps have either felt a bit bruised by that, or perhaps have have waited by the sidelines, or indeed feel that they just can't stomach anymore. So given where we are right now with levels pretty much at all-time highs, what would you say to potential clients, to, to customers, it, it feels a bit precarious. So what's the right way to think about this in your view?
1: Yeah, so uh, Nikki, this is a fascinating question. It came from one of our one of our listeners who got in contact over LinkedIn and argued that well, just just pointed out that, and this is the experience of many clients of a certain age one, one suspects, that they'd experienced the crash and got out at the bottom and hadn't managed to get back in. It's a kind of huge financial trauma this can, mm. this can create with huge kind of reverberations. It, it, it's a great question. I think probably... We want to get Rob Smith back on to answer more fully, as this is certainly one where his kind of behavioural insights are key. For my side, I'd make a couple of points just to sort of semi-cover it. From a theoretical perspective, you can view the potential just to get really boring about markets for a second, but bear bear with me, I'll try not to be too boring. But you can view the potential for positive expected returns from a range of asset classes. As part of a kind of incentive structure designed to provide some, you know, what's called proportional compensation for the risks inherent in a particular asset class. So risk and reward, you know, they're they're supposedly linked, intrinsically linked. Now, so for example, in the world of government bonds, you have tended to get a higher return from lending to the government for multiple years in one slug versus a series of shorter term loans. Now, in some part, this extra compensation is about the risk that inflation will spike unexpectedly during the loan period, eating away at some of your potential expected returns. Now, with stocks, some argue that the extra compensation you have historically received from owning companies rather than lending to them or indeed the government is associated with these shocking and mostly unpredictable downturns. Now as an owner you really experience the economic cycle both the sort of you know both its ups and and the inevitable downs. Now essentially, that extra compensation is to incentivize would-be investors to still provide money to companies in exchange for partial ownership, even in the face of these horrible unknowns. Now, the other point to make is really that history suggests that these downturns, gut churning, sometimes tragic, are part of the toll for accessing stocks. They have tended however to be pretty occasional increasingly less frequent actually if you look at the long sweep of history uh, and the more regular rewards from ownership have drowned them out over time now the point that we would make and a very familiar one is that the more time you can spend fully invested the better but for those, you know, really scarred by the past, perhaps opt for a lower risk batch of of, of investment. So, you know, as you know, we have five risk profiles. Many other houses will do a similar kind of range of risk profiles. Now, even the lowest is designed to comfortably beat the returns from cash over the next decade and should provide a much less thrilling ride than than the medium to, to higher risk profiles. But like I say, Rob will give a much fuller answer on this, but much better answer
0: probably as well. Okay, well, we'll definitely get Rob back, but I think that was was helpful. Thanks, Will. And just turning to oil prices, we've seen oil prices go up and up and up. Are you expecting this to continue?
1: I'm going to hedge myself again. So, well, the short, you know, I mean, as you know, Nikki, you know, the short term direction of oil prices should be necessarily low conviction activity, predicting the the short term direction. For starters, a large chunk of the supply is controlled by a cartel with, you know, what's described as often kind of opaque motivations. However, there are a number of interesting things going on in the space at the moment, particularly in the non-OPEC piece of supply, if you think about it. Now, you had this court ruling in the Netherlands, which you may well have read about, ordering Royal Dutch uh, shelters significantly accelerate um, its emissions reduction plans. The shareholder move at Exxon should help that uh, drive company strategy away from fossil fuels. So goes the theory and a couple of other developments as well. Now, the point here is really with reference to the future actions of OPEC, the oil cartel. So OPEC has a far greater share of the world's oil reserves, so over half, excluding Venezuela, than it has of global production, which is more like a third. Now, without market share gains on the production front, the risk is that OPEC countries will see a disproportionately large share of their reserves stranded as global oil demand peaks in the decade ahead. Now, essentially, it was previously thought to be in their interest to keep oil price rises contained uh, in order to keep shale operators in the US from eating up market share again. However, climate related pressures on publicly listed companies, as described you know, just now, could alleviate these concerns a little bit, potentially. So that I think that, you know, there's an increasingly kind of interesting case for oil prices to remain pretty well supported at current levels in the absence of another demand shock, of course. But as you know, it, we are not singling out, you know, in terms of our diversified portfolios, uh, you know, we are not singling out industrial commodities in our portfolios, not gold, not oil, not copper. We like diversified exposure because that gives us more chances of picking up the Compensation we are looking for from this space. Uh, we'll get JP on to talk more uh, in more detail about that risk premium in more detail. It's associated with something called storage theory. I'm not going to go into it now, but that's why we like diversified, which includes oil, rather than just focusing on oil or gold or something singular.
0: Perfect. And you know, we had a long talk in a recent podcast around high quality, high growth versus value stocks. Yeah. And I think. You know, a challenge that's come through from a listener is about, look, all well and good, but we've typically seen high quality companies with very robust balance sheets and consistent profitability performing really well in a recessionary environment. So, and actually that extends quite beyond the recessionary environment. And the challenge here is why would you own anything else? So, Will, are you able to counter that challenge?
1: I will try, Nikki. And I thought the guys did a great job last last week of sort of describing the kind of value versus growth. And really, I'm really making it very accessible, even to me. But I mean, I think the point to make here is that the industry is not of one mind here. You might say there are lots of ways to skin a cat. At the core, though, and again, it's a bit theory here, but there is an assumption about how markets organize that incentive structure that we were just talking about. Uh, essentially, investments in a high quality and a low quality business should have the same expected returns after you've adjusted for the various risks of ownership. Now, I'm oversimplifying decades of Nobel Prize winning uh, <laughs> contributions, but, you know, forgive me. So it shouldn't really make a difference, in a sense, whether you focus on one or the other. That's the reality. That, that That's the theory. Now, investors go through Phases of liking certain types of companies more than others, as the guys pointed out uh, this uh, the last week. Now, these phases can last a long time, years even, and tend to come and go pretty unpredictably, driven by the unstable, you know, an unstable mix of kind of regulatory, economic, political, societal, you know, climate uh, and factors. There is no reason why so-called quality companies should be better investments than other businesses over time. In fact, you could even argue that such investments can become victims of their own su- uh, success as expectations and interest grows. Expected returns should fall in a sense or more of that kind of earning stream is already priced in. Like I say, that there, there's lots of different views on this out there. From, from our perspective, the bulk of our proposition invests across styles, you know, diversifying across all of them. We want to generate smoother kind of long-term returns. However, we do offer, you know, as you know, portfolios that focus more on quality. And they have done extremely well in recent times, thanks to that recently, you know, very intuitive appeal. It's complicated and there's no easy answer to this question. But yeah, that that's my best attempt for now.
0: But I think the point you make there, Will, about about it it not being particularly clearer about when those, those trends will change. And therefore, you're taking quite a bit of risk being firmly on one side or, or the other, and therefore taking a more what we call style neutral or balanced approach is more in keeping with, with the kinds of risks that we're willing to take, but also, frankly, where we place our bets. I think
1: that's right, Nick. And I think, you know, just the final point, when you're looking at investing, you're aiming to get the world economy over time. That's the sort of, you know, the trend growth rate of the world economy. Now, for short periods of time, you can focus your investments in a much smaller corner of the world economy, be they country, style, sector, and earn supernormal returns, or way below the average returns. However, what we're trying to do is try and get that average as much as possible. So, you know, that does mean that there are periods of under and over you know, you know underperformance relative to the more concentrated areas, uh, concentrated investors. But over time, we're very happy with that story, because we just want to make sure that we deliver year in, year out as often as possible.
0: Good, very clear. Thank you. So, Olivia, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Will. Um, and thank you to our listeners. Um, if you do have any Questions that you'd like to hear addressed in in upcoming podcasts, please don't hesitate to contact us on on LinkedIn or, or via other means. But with that, I will wish you all lots more sunshine and a very happy weekend when it comes. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.